Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. People in a position of power use quote-unquote empathy as a way to justify telling people who are suffering what they need yeah. um, as opposed to actually listening to the people who are suffering uh, and hearing from them firsthand what they need and trying to work with them to figure out how to provide it. I've learned that I need to always hold the distance between me and other people and always hold this idea that I can't possibly understand what somebody else is experiencing and that the only way to take a stab at understanding is to really listen with an open mind and an open heart to what they're saying. It's really important, I think, in those interactions to approach the person at their level. Tell me what's, what's bothering you, tell me what's going on and I'll do my best to sort of bring you to the hospital if that's what you need, or to, to provide the little amount of care that EMTs can provide on scene. Mm -hmm. uh, the world is filled with people who are doing, who are passionate about things. For me at least, it's important for me to be consistent and to not like spend a bunch of money mm -hmm. getting into some hobby and then drop the hobby sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also really okay for me to experience different things and dabble in different things. It's okay for me to get really into audio engineering for a few years and then pull back a little bit. Um, and I, I hope to continue for the rest of my life to have things that I'm committed to, like my career and my family, um, and then to also leave myself the space to explore and to try to find new things that I'll be committed to. This is your host, Fei Wu, and you're listening to a brand new episode from Face World Podcast. Today's superhero is Eli Schramm. Okay, just kidding. Eli is also an unsung hero who has appeared on a much earlier episode of Face World, episode 27. I actually couldn't believe this when I said it because that was more than 100 episodes ago. Anyway, Eli opened that episode by introducing himself with a rap song that he wrote. He learned to produce music while he was still in high school, and he was only 17 years old in episode 27. He learned how to rap back then, held a near 4.0 GPA, volunteered at Samaritans in Boston for a few years, and even went back there to continue his work during college. That episode remains to be one of the most popular, most downloaded episodes of all time. Eli and I could not, still can't believe that is true. So where has he been? Where is he now? This episode answers all the questions. So if you have been a fan of Eli, this is the episode for you. We talked about giving and receiving feedback, an area where Eli is paying close attention to and hopes to improve upon. At the same time, he is insanely curious about the healthcare system. I mean, who isn't? Even if you're not, you feel like you probably should care. Um, so his curiosity has taken him to several internships, from Mass General Hospital to Boston Medical Center, and even getting his EMT certification. By the way, Eli is only 20 years old. He told me about the special feeling of connecting with someone that is uniquely possible only in a healthcare setting. He talks about the complicated power dynamics and uh, being an EMT person working often in lower uh, income neighborhoods and be able to connect with someone where they are, not to pretend that he knows everything or what's best. Eli is now a junior at Vassar College, and he spends a lot of time learning, going to classes, as you can imagine. But um, during his rare free time, he chooses to work at a transitional community helping previously incarcerated young adults. 
So this conversation can easily turn into a love fest. I absolutely adore Eli, which you will find out in a minute. But it intrigued me to think about what can the future generation, in this case, younger millennials do to help themselves and really make the world a better place? What can they contribute and influence today, not 10 or 20 years from now? You know, are they really completely powerless and choiceless? If you enjoy this episode and if you feel like another young person you know, whether it's your friend or your children, your nephews, nieces, please help share this episode. I think it really means so much to us and I think it will really help uh, young people rethink the possibilities. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your precious time here with us and uh, very special happy holidays to all of you. This is the last episode uh, at the end of 2017 and I cannot possibly think of a better person to help me close this chapter of Face World. Without further ado, please welcome the very special unsung hero, Eli Schramm, to the Face World podcast. here with Eli Schramm, who has appeared on an earlier episode of Face Rural Podcast. Mm -hmm. Not only that, you were only 17 at the time. And what really intrigued me in terms of what you were passionate about working on was Samaritans of Boston. And I've been involved in their annual breakfast, learn more about the organization. That was an incredible experience for me. But now you're a junior. At uh, Vassar College. Vassar College. That's correct. I'm so grateful to be back on the show. I think this is a really special place. Um, I'm really interested in hearing people talk about what they're passionate about. Even if that thing itself isn't something that I am interested in, I think that the way that people talk when they're really in love with something is, is beautiful to see. And I think that your show really is about that. It's about capturing people's passions from all walks of life. So I'm so grateful to be able to be here sharing my passions yeah, I think the show is a really incredible thing. Thank you, Eli. And hearing that from you really means a lot because you are what I like to consider the OG, one of the OGs of Face World, really uh, saw it from inception and mm -hmm. through some of the ups and downs, or mostly ups. Over the years, a lot of the insights and such as what you just shared with me, and I really don't mind hearing more of, as you can imagine, became some became taglines and really helped me drew clarity to mm. what and why I'm doing. And that's really powerful to have that. Um, yeah. So, so you mentioned Samaritans um, and all I can, I'm happy to give a little bit of an update uh, about that. I've can actually continued to stay in touch with them and to work with them uh, over time. It's been more difficult now that I'm in school. I'm not in Boston anymore, but when I come back for breaks, occasionally I'll do shifts with them. And I still feel really strongly about the work that they do there. I think it's really incredible. It also sheds light on the way that I think mental health care is not provided uh, in this country. Uh, so many of the callers that we get are people who have been somehow failed by the mental health care system. And I think that's maybe one of the less expected parts. It's not just people who are calling feeling imminently suicidal. It's also people who are calling because they need some sort of care and uh, they can't get it elsewhere. And that's a hard position to be in. There were times, especially this last winter break, uh, when I was back in Boston, where I would get a caller who I knew desperately needed help. And I knew that I was so far from qualified to help this person. Um, and, so, and so powerless to help this person just from my position, you know, miles away on the phone. They, and they knew that for the most part. They knew that I couldn't actually help them, but I was the best thing that they, that they had. And it sort of feels sometimes like giving just enough nourishment to a starving person to keep them alive, mm -hmm. but constantly suffering. And there's, that's something that I really have to continue to reckon with. I obviously was grateful to have been there to begin with, but there's a way in which what I was doing was not nearly enough. You have shown a lot of empathy and just hearing you talk makes me wonder. I mean, one of the reasons we connect is I feel the same way a lot of the times. And mm. 
I'm much older and that sometimes I look back to see myself as an absorbing so much of that energy you know mm-hmm. same thing with podcasting but it's generally very positive mm-hmm. um, but sometimes when I interview oncologists or interview right. someone with a disease or mm-hmm. in that moment during production I mean my whole body is so involved in that in their journey as if I were them so are you aware of that how do you see yourself with the love of empathy that you have possibly beyond your age and your generation um, well, I think empathy is an interesting concept. There's a way in which I I would challenge the idea that empathy as experiencing somebody else's experience could even exist. Because, you know, everyone comes into this world with their own, as their own person. And there's no way that I can ever really fully encapsulate somebody else's experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes really important because often I see people using this sort of concept of empathy as a way to justify making decisions for other people. And this comes into play in a lot of spaces. It comes into play in a lot of humanitarian aid, where people in a position of power uh, use, quote unquote, empathy as a way to justify telling people who are suffering what they need, um, as opposed to actually listening to the people who are suffering uh, and hearing from them firsthand what they need and trying to work with them to figure out how to provide it. Um, and this is something actually that college has really taught me. There are a lot of really important people in my life who I've had really challenging conversations with that have really brought me to this place of understanding that empathy is a complicated concept. So I, I do try I do try my hardest to, to understand where people are coming from. And I try my hardest to, to experience, to, to experience in myself something that might approximate what other people are experiencing. But I think in large part because of these really wonderful people that I've met at school, I've learned that I need to always hold the distance between me and other people and always hold this idea that I can't possibly understand what somebody else is experiencing and that the only way to take a stab at understanding is to really listen with an open mind and an open heart to what they're saying. I love that. That's um, one of the kind of a selfish reason why I started the podcast was because Mm. I wanted to be a good listener and I, before that, I always believed I was one already. So um, over the years, I think, um, as I was getting older, I noticed it was not a skill necessarily that you were born with or you're just naturally good at. And sure, some people are better, better listeners. But I think to keep an open mind isn't always easy mm. in my cases. And I find it these days when I record a conversation, because I have so much love for the people I'm speaking with, some people are complete strangers I will probably never meet in person. But I really try to put myself in that position, just to reimagine the things that they accomplish and the things that they are so passionate about. But sometimes it's outside of the podcasting environment that can Mm -hmm. be... A struggle sometimes with family members, with people you're particularly close with, and and at work when clients being unreasonable. So I try to kind of hone in on that skill. I feel like if I can elevate myself during podcasting, maybe I can disperse some of that skills and reuse it elsewhere. Absolutely, <laughs> and I I think that it's a really as I said at the beginning of the of the episode, it's a really wonderful platform to to think about what it means to really listen to someone and to really hear someone. And I actually think that. Not only are you providing an opportunity for yourself to work on that skill, you're actually probably providing an opportunity to all your listeners to work on that skill as well as they hear people talking about things that they're passionate about. I love it's so such an interesting, uh, I guess, in this almost like tips and tricks in terms of how to even listen to a podcast, because I notice the same thing when I listen to, say, digital marketing, because I happen to be a, a digital marketer. I tend to want to answer those questions. Oh, I know a better way to do this. Right. I know how to save you more money. And you completely miss the point and miss the answers altogether. So I think podcast is such an interesting platform to give you that chance to to go back. And I think even that simple action of going back shows something about who you are as a person. Actually, the last time I appeared on the show, I think that I, I don't remember if this is exactly what I said, but I remember at that time in my life, I felt like I had learned how to be a good listener. And I've since sort of reimagined what being a good listener is and that I don't necessarily think that I can ever say I am a good listener because I feel like as soon as I say that, I become complacent 
and I stop listening. And I, especially when it be, when it comes to things like criticism, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's very hard to listen to criticism. And if as soon as I think I am quote unquote good at receiving feedback, that's the time when I think I'll close myself off and become complacent. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm working hard now to try to think about how to constantly be challenging. Am I really listening to what this person's saying, or am I doing that thing where I try to answer the question before it's out? Am I really hearing the feedback that this person is trying to give me, or am I getting defensive and trying to, you know, flip the script and make it about them? You challenge us to talk about getting and receiving feedback, which also, I know you're looking at one of the sticky notes I have on my computer. It says ignore sunk cost. Uh, in that very session, Seth Godin's L10BA earlier this year, where I mm-hmm. just learned a tremendous amount of information I thought I already knew, but I did not at all. Or, you know, sunk costs, you ignore sunk costs, you hear that in business school sometimes, and you just imagine that you know it. But when it comes to analyzing your own project, your life, to say, what is what does it even mean to you? You don't realize that, what, what that actually translates to. But one of the other lessons I, I learned precisely what Seth focuses on is giving and receiving feedback and it's such a challenge and Mm. sometimes you ignore it you try to ignore it especially when you're trying to when you're at work not alone in this case I have the privilege to be alone and to sit with myself but if you're in a out out in the open and people staring at you you're trying to suppress that Mm -hmm. and you behave very differently so I definitely exercise receiving feedback and try to be a good listener Mm. I think the ideal scenario is one where um, uh, I would receive feedback or you would receive feedback, and then we would immediately be able to kind of suppress that defensive instinct. I think that that is the standard that I will hold myself to, but I also know that I will fall short of that standard. And I think that in those cases, it's very easy to sort of cut ties with the whole situation and just and leave it and be like, I'll do better next time. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that there's a lot can, that can be done retrospectively to make a situation more okay. So recently I had a, a scenario where a close friend of mine gave me some feedback about the way that I was behaving in a class and they felt sort of isolated by my behavior in that class. And at the time I really didn't receive the feedback well. I didn't yell at my friend. I didn't snap at my friend, but I didn't I sort of dismissed what my friend said. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was really hurtful for them. And I was able to sort of realize this after the fact and kind of go back and apologize and have another conversation, reopen that conversation with my friend. And I think that that was really important because I realized actually after that second conversation that had I not gone back, that probably would have been the last piece of feedback that I got from this friend. Mm. I think when it comes to feedback, there's a whole set of opportunities and things that you might not see on your own. I try to imagine what actually happened in that class. Were you answering or giving an answer too quickly? Were you asking too many questions? What what was that situation like? Uh, it was a little bit more. So this is a very group work oriented class. And my friend felt that I was sort of ignoring them, that I wasn't including them in the in the group work that I was doing, which is, to be perfectly fair, something that I can have a tendency to do. Mm-hmm. I get very sort of laser focused on producing a result. Okay. Um, and I forget about the fact that in group work scenarios, it, it is, it's always about the process as well as the, as the product. I have a lot of work to do um, in, in terms of making myself a better partner mm-hmm. uh, to, work, to work on group work with. mature observation uh knowing you for i want to say oh my god most of your life i can't believe that's Mm. actually true we i think we're wired differently and i see you not only as someone who's interested in medicine but Mm. science in general and figuring things out problem solving and the reason for you to be so there's that balance the reason for you to be so good at it is because you can tune out a lot of these things right Mm. so for me uh, sometimes that's something I struggle. Like I would love to dedicate more time 
just to do one thing, but my emails will pop up, my phones are ring, my mom. Right, I get right. distracted. You know, I'm not saying you're free from distractions, but you're so passionate. Whenever you talk about an algorithm, a new discovery, things I wouldn't understand, you really go deep. You get really into it. And so, how do you balance that? Something that makes you good at what you do professionally, academically, versus trying to be a, a group member and collaborator. <laughs> like to be honest, I don't know that I really do very well, so I might not be the best person to ask about how to balance that.、Um, mm -hmm. So for I've since I we last appeared on the show, I、um, went to school and I declared a math major. So a lot of the work that I do now is in math problem sets, proofs,、um, derivations, things like this. And I think the reason, part of the reason why I'm so passionate about it, is that it's the kind of thing I can really lose myself in.、Mm -hmm. I'll start. Last night is a great example. I was working on a problem set for one of my classes. I had to do this very long、um, derivation.、Mm -hmm. um, it was a it was a really complicated problem. It was really interesting, and I really got to like use all the tools in my algebra toolkit to solve it.、Uh, and it was something that I started it. I mean, I've been working on it for a few weeks, but I started it at like maybe eight p.m. And I looked up, and it was three in the morning. And I had, and I just finished it, but I hadn't even noticed the time go by.、Mm -hmm. And that's really special. And so I love that. It's interesting. I think many of the things that I'm really passionate about, I I, I find myself losing myself in those in those activities. There's、uh, some psychiatrist who calls this like flow.、Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not familiar with who,、um, but I really feel like I get into this this flow. And that's true. I mean, that's true with a lot of my hobby activities too, like even video games,、um, or ultimate frisbee, or、um, electronics repair, which is something we can talk about afterwards. But the the same way that I sort of get laser focused and I ignore everything around me other than the problem, and this is something you alluded to, when someone's trying to get my attention, when someone's trying to ask me a question, I can be very dismissive. And I think it's it's easy to use this sort of impersonal. Perspective to describe this to say like oh this is something that happens to me that I lose myself and therefore I can't be held responsible for the way that I react when people try to ask my advice or ask a question and I think that that's the wrong way to approach it I think I need to take responsibility even I need to be able to have that interrupt、mm -hmm. be able to say okay I'm close to a breakthrough on this problem but my friend is either a step ahead or a step behind and has A question that I might be able to help them with, and I might learn, and I probably will learn in the process. I need to be able to have that interrupt. I need to be able to step back, drop what I'm doing, and really, with my whole mind, listen to what they're saying. I mean, it really goes back to listening. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about kind of this comes in full circle there, and. Teaching, from my experience, is sometimes the best way to learn and to dissect, get in even deeper to a place that you might not even see on your own. But I, I do want to address the fact that my whole, entire career as a project manager before I went freelancing, and even now I still freelance as a project manager, is about the ability to multitask. And there are numerous articles、uh, talking about how that's never possible or it's not ideal to create deep work. You know, I thought. Based on some of my teachers, I consider someone like Dory Clark. People like Dory Clark. They block out their calendars Tuesdays and Thursdays, for example. They even share like a screenshot of that. We're just uninterrupted work, you know. Because in、yeah. reality, they have to connect with their listeners, with their readers, and email lists,、mm -hmm. and other people who want to interview them, whatever that reason may be. So they can't,、right. in reality, block out Monday through Friday, right? I also um. Talk to a lot of parents with young kids, and they, a lot of su successful entrepreneurs I know, love their family life. They really、mm. love their kids, want to spend more time. But when they're young, you know, they teach their kids if their morning time is very important, and everybody has a slightly different routine. Right. Put up a sign,、uh, you know, in front of their office to say no interruption for mommy before noon, and the、mm. kids learn that. As in a result, they're able to accomplish so much more, and the kids. Know how to entertain themselves, and they grow up to be more independent, and they、right. respect what their parents are passionate about. So yeah, and and I think that's that's in some ways the way that、uh, my parents operated when we were young,、um, but I never really thought about it that way. And I think one of the really nice side effects of that is that if you set aside time for work versus time for spending time with the family, each of those can take on this sort of whole self quality, and that if I'm 
if, if I'm working and I'm not distracted when I'm working, then I get more work done. And that means that when I'm with my family, I don't have to think about my work. I can think about really being with my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, since we recorded the last episode, and the reason for that is I, I couldn't really see myself at then maybe a 30-year-old to take on such a endeavor such as um, Samaritans. And, mm. you know, I was personally going through a, a friend's suicide and yeah. it was very difficult. You know, so it was really daring is not the word, but it's kind of pushing your own personal limit into mm. tabbing into a, a place because what's sometimes maybe a little scary or unsettling is not only the fact that you're helping others, but you're probably discovering so much more about yourself. Um, since then, you've taken on, the, you know, becoming a ambulance driver or mm. uh, assistant. So tell us about like, do you recall, do you remember what kind of triggered that interest? And like, you know, how, how did that come about? So I think I've always had an interest in, in uh, healthcare. Um, I come by it from my family. I mean, both of my, my parents are physicians and my grandfather was a physician, et cetera. And I think that that was really what planted the seed in my head. But I think that what's there are a couple things that have drawn me back to uh, anything in the vicinity of healthcare over time. I think I really find the human interaction to be very meaningful. Um, it's the kind of thing when, I, when I'm working EMT shifts, I often have to leave the house by four in the morning. So waking up at at four or at three thirty as an eighteen um, year old, <laughs> right? Yeah, there aren't that many things that can really get me out of bed at that time. Um, and truth be told, human interaction only barely makes the cut. But that that very special feeling of connecting with someone, which is in some ways uniquely possible uh, in a healthcare setting. There's also a way in which there's this very complicated power dynamic of being a healthcare provider. And especially, you know, I, when I work as an EMT, I work in some of the more impoverished neighborhoods in Boston. And there's something very complex about me as a, you know, upper middle class white person going into a impoverished community where most of the residents are are immigrants or, or of minority status in one way or another, providing this sort of caretaking role in that space. So one of the things that I've had to think about in this full circle back to the listening, it's really important, I think, in that in those interactions to approach the person at, at their level, not at this level of, you know, I know what's best, um, but rather at this level of tell me what's what's bothering you. Tell me what's going on and I'll do my best to sort of bring you to the hospital if that's what you need or to to provide the little amount of care that EMTs can provide on scene. Mm -hmm. A large part of that job also was taking people to and from dialysis appointments, to and from doctor's appointments, people who, for one reason or another, it was deemed unsafe for them to travel in a cab or, or on foot or driving, and that an ambulance was considered the best transport for them. And those actually, I think, were my favorite. Those are my favorite calls because those, I think, in those spaces, in many ways, that weird power dynamic could dissolve more organically. Mm -hmm. um, that felt like a very genuine uh, interaction. It wasn't as if, you know, I was, I had to be in that space because I was being, you know, that was my job. I had to be there with them. No one was forcing me to talk with them and no one was forcing them to talk with me. Mm -hmm. So it, it was this very meeting in the middle, sort mm -hmm. of having this conversation because we were both interested in doing it. Wow. That sounds amazing. You make me want to give that a shot too. So <laughs> just to clarify your role in the ambulance, sure. it's not as a driver, but you're actually in the back. So it's actually, we take turns. So the, in a, in your typical basic life support ambulance, these are the this ones that look more like a U-Haul van than like the sort of boxy trucks. And those are the kinds that I work in. You have two, what are called EMT basics. And we are trained in emergency response driving. So we do drive. We're also trained in basic life support, which includes things like cardiac arrest, splinting, broken bones, administering simple drugs like uh, aspirin, Narcan, epinephrine, things like this, things that people could technically administer themselves, but that, you know, we've been trained on how to administer these in crisis situations. What are some of the skills that, that are hard to learn? Because some of the things I heard, I, I imagine, you know, if you sprint something or, you know, if you have a broken bone, what, right. do, you, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, so I think it's interesting. I There are a lot of skills that I technically 
quote unquote, have learned, but have never actually performed. So for example, I, in the state of Massachusetts in New York, I am registered to deliver children because of my EMT certification. I've never done it. Um, and I'm sure that I could do it because I was trained to do it, but I wouldn't say that a skill that that's a skill that I have. But the sort of funny thing about that is that childbirth is kind of, if there are no complications, I mean, people have been giving birth since the beginning of human history without, with, I mean, and there, there have been issues, but, but for the most part, it's kind of takes care of itself. It needs only just a very small amount of uh, guiding. But yeah, I mean, I think the the skill that I am perhaps the most proud of that took the longest to really develop, and this is something that I would really say is a skill that I've worked on, is the ability to stay calm in a crisis situation. You know, so just the other, just a, a week or two ago, um, I was with my grandmother and we saw uh, an older woman slip and fall um, on the sidewalk. Very fortunately, she was totally okay. It was really remarkable, actually, because it was, you know, a, a fully standing fall. But in that situation, I felt very comfortable approaching her, asking her how she was doing, little things that, that I wouldn't, wouldn't have occurred to me, I think, to do in, a, in sort of an intense emotional situation like seeing someone fall. You're very, you're very careful at picking, choosing your words and language even way before, you know, since you were five. So... Uh, with that said, what I find really astonishing and really interesting is some of these training that teach you to, you know, there's body language involved. Mm -hmm. and there is certain certain words that you choose over the others that might sound good, but might trigger certain emotional uh, barriers and such. I'm curious, like, what are, how do you ask your questions and what are the micro expressions and, you know, things that you pay attention to what you learned? Um, I would say it really depends on the situation. And I think a lot of it, it's hard to teach that kind of thing. And I don't necessarily know if I'm good at it or not. I've just tried to sort of intuit um, my way around uh, how to ask questions. Some of the interesting questions that I think are very complicated to ask are questions that often sound judgmental. So for example, as a part of any sort of healthcare screening, people are always asked about whether or not they smoke tobacco, whether or not they drink alcohol, and whether or not they use any other drugs. And the way to ask those questions is really complex. And that's something that I've paid a lot of attention to. I think if it if I ask the question with too bright a tone, it almost sounds kind of mocking. If I ask the question with too much gravitas, it sounds judgmental. So there's this sweet spot. Um, and I actually had a not-so-wonderful experience being asked one of those questions recently. I was at a doctor's appointment, and I was asked about whether or not I drink alcohol. And the way that I was asked made me feel all of a sudden very, uh, should be ashamed of it. And, you know, I don't blame this person. You know, I was, I, it was the end of the day. It had been a long day. Um, uh, and I think that it's totally understandable. That being said, I think it was it was it was hard to be in a be receiving healthcare and feel like I was somehow unworthy. I think in the case when somebody's fallen, uh, you know, approaching them and asking like, "Hey, how are you doing?" I think the message is pretty clear that someone's there to help um, and not there to be judgmental. But I, I think in general that there are some questions that are easier to ask and other questions that are harder to ask. So that's my convoluted answer to you. Pursued a an internship training at um, a local hospital here in Boston, where you hold onto an iPad and kind of being able to survey and even greet people where they're in the waiting room to trying to find out what is wrong with them or there being nothing wrong, maybe right. just routine. You know, so what what was that experience like for you? Absolutely. I actually, <laughs> interestingly enough, I think in this particular um, domain, you're probably as if not more qualified to speak about it than I am. I think the memory of um, you actually serving as a sort of mediator in a lot of the care of at least um, your mother when she was ill a little while ago mm -hmm. uh, and she needed everything translated. Um, for my experience, I was very underprepared. I had a full-time job, so mm. I wasn't never really did this in terms of experience. I, right. I didn't have the time or that emotional, again, training, like you said, to mm. be remain calm 
for me, that was interesting now, in retrospect, she's doing uh, very well today. When we received the news that she was actually diabetic, I just remember for me to even hear that word to, to felt so foreign. And then I have to look at her to think this is going to be a chronic thing, possibly mm. for the rest of her life. How and if I should translate that? So, so there's not just that accuracy. It's like, I know exactly what's going on. So I remember a couple of things I did instead of that real-time translation. I try to, this is maybe advice for a lot of my friends and people out there have to do a lot of translation for their parents or loved ones. and. I try to just delve in a little bit deeper in terms of understanding what we're dealing with at that time. So asking not too many questions, but the key questions such as how bad is it? What are, what do we expect to do next? How long does she have to stay in the hospital? Where is she going to stay? Right. Um, so after I felt like I gathered some somewhat sufficient information, I then started the translation. So right. slow down that real time back and forth, like a ping pong ball, you know? Right. And I imagine, I think it's interesting as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, um, you know, what I was talking about before, about how the tone makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. And that it's almost as if serving as the translator, you're expected to sort of relay the tone of the provider, but in an entirely different language and entirely different cultural context. So I'm not surprised. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that you'd need a lot more information to be able to do that. You need to understand, you know, if somebody says, uh, you know, I'm really sorry, but... You, I think you're suffering from diabetes. Like that sounds a lot more serious than if the provider says like, you know, we did a routine test and I think you might have diabetes. Mm -hmm. So being able to take that and turn, turn it into an, a message that's in an entirely different language, literally and metaphorically, is really interesting. And um, the hospital we're staying at gave me such insight into... I know the, the American medical system is nowhere near perfection, but mm. coming from where... What I was used to, my dad being sick in China. So yeah. think about the cancer patients at Dana-Farber. But that hospital, imagine the hospital flooded with 20 times the people, with people sitting or nowhere to even sit while right. having cancer to what my mom had staying at ICU for 10 days. I know that sounds like an extraordinary amount of time. They were incredibly patient and just so kind and talking to her, capturing, asking us questions such as, where does she walk to? What does she like to do? What was yeah. her, like you sitting in the in that ambulance trying to understand her as a person and right. not just a subject or a patient. Yeah, yeah that, that, I mean, I think that's interesting observation. I think that's really beautiful that she was able to be provided that. But going, going back to your experience with the iPad and yeah, talking absolutely. to patients, how did you find the opportunity for maybe some listeners who want to even consider doing that? Or you self-initiated a lot of these things. I just want to put it out there. Not because your mm. parents are doctors and just slotted you in some situation. You found out about these things that your parents were surprised that they even existed or you'd be interested in them. Well, first of all, I very much appreciate that. I think to be perfectly fair, I definitely have benefited from, you know, connections that my parents have in the in the medical world. And in one case, it was as simple as knowing the right vocabulary to use in a job search. I mean, that's really something that I get from from the background that I come from. And that's not something that I've necessarily earned. That being said, I have really worked hard to try to find a variety of opportunities. And I, I would say I have not necessarily relied solely on acumen or connections of my of my folks to try to find different opportunities in the healthcare world. The iPad position that I held, basically I was working on collecting something called patient reported outcomes, which is a new, uh, relatively new movement in medicine to try to actually ask patients structured questions um, about how they feel they are doing, which is sort of revolutionary, probably shouldn't be very revolutionary, given that, I don't know, I think it's one of the sort of first things that uh, one would think of doing. That being said, healthcare is a very complicated space, so I don't want to come in and pretend that I could solve the whole thing or pretend that, you know, this should have been something that was easy to foresee. But yeah, I think it's it's made a lot of really interesting waves. Um, it, first of all, patients tend to have a pretty good sense of how they're doing, and patient-reported outcomes correlate very well with more traditional physician-based sort of observational um, metrics of how patients are doing which is wonderful for a bunch of reasons. First of all, it's much more efficient to ask somebody how they're doing than it is to devote physician time mm -hmm. to evaluating how they're doing. 
Uh, and second of all, it gives patients the opportunity to share components of their health and wellness that might not be externally observable. Pain is a really good example. Almost impossible to, to externally observe pain because um, everyone reacts to pain differently. Yeah, so I worked basically facilitating large-scale collection of patient-reported outcomes using an iPad. So I helped build the tool, the survey tool that we used, and I helped manage the data from the back end. And I think the majority of my work was helping to sort of incorporate the iPad into the workflow, help patients who were unfamiliar with how to use the technology, uh, help answer questions, and help tweak the design to make it as intuitive and straightforward as possible for the patients and for the front desk staff. What a great, fantastic experience because there's so many touch points, right? So it's it sounded straightforward as a task. I mean, I've been handed the iPad in many different situations. Mm. Um, never at a hospital setting, unfortunately, but BSC, Boston Sports Club, recently incorporated that. And there's something kind of surprising about that experience as of, you know, at that setting, I feel like, wow, you're interested in hearing what I have to say or how I'm feeling at this moment in time that will be addressed you know, once I walk into the office, you know, without calling out the hospital name or specific patients, obviously, that's not what this is about. But what have you learned as surprising findings in the end? Um, I think there were a lot of things that were surprising to me in the implementation side of things. So first of all, what was surprising to me is that very few people had trouble using the iPads. Computers are very complicated, but they can be made to be very simple if they exist for a very a straightforward, dedicated task. So these iPads, you filled out a survey, all you had to do was touch yes or no or, or zero through five on the screen. There was no free text entry. There was no drop-down selecting lists. These things that tend to be more complicated, we deliberately kept out of the design and found that very few people had trouble, regardless of, of age and also regardless of impairment from disease. The other thing that was not perhaps surprising, but really I think requires a lot of thought, is the way that this initiative created tension on the provider end of things. Um, and I think that that's because providers, nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, the whole sort of suite of providers, even you know medical assistants, physician's assistants, there are so many different types, it's hard to name them all, are, are expected to be, to devote so much time to so many different things that I think there's a feeling that they're losing the ability to devote time to the patients. That hour and 15 minutes that I may have had driving somebody to a faraway doctor's appointment in the ambulance where I could really get to know them, understand, ask them about, you know, what they're passionate about, what, how they feel about their health, these kinds of things. Those are becoming harder and harder to do when you have to satisfy a series of government requirements mm -hmm. about collecting information about demographics and, and uh, public health concerns, smoking status, things like this. When you have to book more and more appointments every day so your appointments get shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. And then this was another thing that was added onto their sort of plate. Um, and I think that it was complicated. You know, there was a way in which we were sort of holding providers accountable to make sure that they were asking these questions, reviewing these questions with patients about their self-reported health outcomes. But there was also a way in which it could have served as a sort of obstacle for providers to ask those questions in their own style. It's such a complicated system. When I think about the healthcare system, uh, it's up there for me compared to things that we have access to or we mm -hmm. rely on in this lifetime. In a sneaky way, I kind of also want to transition to another area, which is palliative care, because mm -hmm. uh, as we know, as you know of uh, B.J. Miller's work and mm -hmm. also uh, Vicki Jackson, whom I have interviewed twice now on the show, right. which is incredible for people who are listening but it's not the same as hospice care. And mm. um, it is provided and uh, to patients. I mean, even at the first diagnosis of um, cancer, whether it's term terminal or not, you yeah. are allowed to have access to that. Granted, you do need that system or that service to be in place, which it is in the case of many hospitals. Um, I think palliative care is a space that I'm very interested going forward. I think it's something I've researched some and what I've found in my research is it appears to me to be a place where a lot of the fundamental assumptions behind our present day, and I think that it's a place that allows other, for example, other healing traditions to come into play. 
I personally am a, I'm a you know stern believer in the scientific method. I think that double blind studies are really important. They demonstrate that the medicine that we offer is excellent at at the goals that we sort of attempt to achieve. It's the medicine that we provide is fantastic at extending people's lifespan. It's fantastic at treating particular symptoms. Mm-hmm. It is impossible to take something as complex as a human life and distill it into a series of actionable items. So there's always something that the double-blind randomized controlled trial cannot fully capture. And that doesn't mean that it's a failure. You know, it's still, it's, it is still like the cornerstone of, of science and medicine. Um, and it's not the only thing that should be offered, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's to say palliative care is a space where there is time to have conversations with somebody and ask what they want. And if the answer is, I would rather have a shorter life with less pain and more, you know, meaningful time with my family than a longer life with more pain and more time in the hospital. That's a question, that's a conversation that's very hard to have in a lot of other spaces. Or, I mean, one really interesting paradox, at the very end of life, oftentimes there is a direct sort of one-to-one trade-off between consciousness and pain. And that if you're medicated for pain, then you sort of lose touch with the world in some respects because, you know, like I said, at the very, very end of life, oftentimes the medicines that we use to treat for pain also cause some sort of delirium that can't be, that doesn't end up getting, you know, processed and and the the compounds don't necessarily ever get broken down and and metabolized. So I'm in particular very interested in helping students who are either in school or very new in their career, you know, after graduating to explore that possibility. But as a project manager, what I see oftentimes is that disconnect of once you remove school or parents or an organization to say, this is what you're going to do when and where, and this is all the logistical side of things, right? I guess the question specific to you and then as a junior, which is an interesting year, junior and senior year, you are now qualified for a lot more things than if you were a freshman, sophomore, but you also have a very busy schedule at a high level without promising anything. What does it look like to you to pick up something during the school year or versus ideally summer really is the only time where you can devote the time that you prefer? So it's interesting. I mean, I think this semester, actually, I I'm working an internship. It's somewhere between an internship and a volunteer position. It's something called field work that Vassar actually offers some academic credit for. And I'm working at a community called Exodus um, in Poughkeepsie. It's a transitional community. It, it, uh, it's designed to sort of help people who are coming, who are formerly incarcerated, uh, apply to jobs, help them apply to housing, benefits, stuff like this. So yeah, so this is something that I've picked up sort of as part of the semester. And one of the things that college has taught me is that there's sort of, for me at least, there's, I'm trying to not listen to the voice in my head that says, now is not the time, you should do this later. Um, you know, this is something that I think I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about the way that the prison system works in this country. I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to support people on both sides before incarceration and after incarceration. And this is something that I could talk about and read about and think about all day but I would rather have some sort of part in it. And that's not to say, for the record, that people who are doing the thinking and talking and reading are not contributing something important to the cause. I think they really are. I think for me personally, it's easier for me to feel inspired. It's easier for me to feel like I'm doing the work that should be done if I have my sort of two feet on the ground. What I find fascinating with you is uh, you, people talk about left brain, right brain. There is such a scientific-centric part of you that you can deep work into anything, math work for Hmm. last night, exactly seven (laughs) hours, right? Um, Uh. But at the same time, there's a polar opposite of something else that you've been doing, which many people still don't know about or, you know, as parents might not even know how to recommend their kids to consider that, being Mm having them being such different part of your brain, a different set of skills. But I, we're just hearing you talk and knowing you as a person, that's such a great way to, for a person's general well-being, I think, to not over-index on certain activities, mm. you know, to get up and not to think about all that. Yeah. Uh, the world is filled with people who are doing, who are passionate about things. And I think that it's important to, for me at least, it's important for me to be consistent 
and to not like spend a bunch of money Mm -hmm. getting into some hobby and then drop the hobby sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also really okay for me to experience different things and dabble in different things. It's okay for me to get really into audio engineering for a few years and then pull back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope to continue for the rest of my life to have things that I'm committed to, like my career and my family, mm-hmm. um, and then to also leave myself the space to explore and to try to find new things that I'll be committed to. That is a, an absolutely lovely ending to this podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. It's such a... Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me a platform to talk about the things that I'm passionate about. Hey, it's Faye. I'm back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at phaseworld.com to find out other episodes from this category or topic, or you could explore other awesome people who are artists and designers, digital marketers, performing artists, authors and speakers, entrepreneurs, students, educators, and more. For this reason, We've taken your feedback and created a landing page to most easily navigate by categories and topics. Simply visit podcast.faceworld.com to learn more. Sincerely, I want to thank you for your support. Bye for now.